Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. I want to uh, echo even what Pastor Chris said a moment ago and just hope you had a wonderful Christmas uh, at your home or wherever you celebrated with family or with friends. We get to see many of you out at the Christmas Eve services. And uh, we're just praising God, as was said also, uh, for what he did as we as a church family were able to laud and praise the name of Jesus, which is what this month has been all about for us as a church in our worship series, resounding and lauding the name of Jesus Christ. But last week, uh, we started off our message talking about another aspect of Christmas, definitely second in importance to uh, praising the name of Jesus, but something that's also important and, of course, associated with Christmas, and that is the giving and receiving of gifts. So today is the day after Christmas, and, uh, you know, all of the shopping and the wrapping and the giving and receiving, it's all behind us now. So the only question left is, how did it go yesterday? You know, moms and dads, how did it go out there? Teens, did you get what you wanted this year for Christmas? How did mom and dad do for you yesterday? Maybe at least uh, if you didn't get what you wanted, you got some gift cards or some cash. Maybe you can take care of that problem yourself in the next couple of days. I always, ask to, I always love to uh, ask the wives, how did the husbands do yesterday on Christmas? You know, sometimes we guys, we can have off years sometimes, right? I mean, I had an off year last year uh, involved a pair of kitchen scissors that I don't want to talk about right now. Um, but sometimes that happens with us guys. Hopefully the husbands did okay yesterday. Maybe you uh, took Chris's advice last week and got yourself something for Christmas this year. Then at least maybe yesterday went okay. You know, you had something that you liked to open. But I, uh, I have kids who are a great age for Christmas uh, because they're younger and they go crazy when they're, you know, opening all their presents. And really at my kids' ages, it's all about the reactions that they have as they open their gifts. In fact, uh, some years my wife and I will put up a, a camera in the corner of the room, like a phone, and just let it record the whole morning. I think I learned that from Pastor Gabe, actually. Um, but, uh, but, but to record it, and we can zoom in later and see the reactions on the kids' faces as they open up these presents. And, and my kids, I have three boys, they all have different, you know, ways of reacting to gifts, like, you know, probably a lot of families with multiple kids, a lot of differences in how they unwrap their gifts. So my oldest, you know, he is like an assassin with his gifts. He's very meticulous and very detail-oriented as he opens up each present. He even has a pile for the already opened wrapping paper uh, that goes over here. The new stuff goes over here and he has the gifts he just slowly goes through. And then my, my middle child, sort of like the classic middle child, very emotional throughout the gift giving process. My wife and I always say, we don't have to wonder what Carson thinks about his gifts because he's going to let us know right there in the moment. He either loves it and it's the best thing ever or mom and dad, what's wrong with you? Why would you buy this for me, right? Uh, and then my youngest, he's just two. So we end up just wrapping up all his old stuff. And, you know, so it's not so much fun to watch him. <laughs> But our responses to, uh, to gifts get a little trickier when we get older. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever had to lie on Christmas when you opened a gift? Oh, I love it, you said, but it wasn't true. You know, some of you might be better at that than other people. I always like to look on social media Christmas night and see some of those reactions and responses to gifts out there, you know, among our family and friends. You'll definitely see the little kids coming down the stairs, very excited about what they're about to do. Maybe you saw somebody get like a car yesterday or something crazy for Christmas. And I always love the videos when those soldiers are home, and they don't tell anybody, you know, and they contort themselves in those like Amazon boxes and they're just waiting for somebody to open that up. And then they come out and they're able to spend Christmas with their families. But probably for almost everybody in here, there was some point yesterday when you got to see some reactions or some responses to gifts that were given and received on Christmas day. And really, responses are a big part of the Christmas story. We have seen throughout this worship series, response after response to the announcement of Jesus's birth. So even when the series started, we talked about the response of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were also expecting a child, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. But they had their own response to the news of Jesus coming to the world. And then Mary and Joseph, of course, also had a response as they found out they're going to be the parents of this newborn king. And we got to see Mary and Joseph as they responded to 
the birth of Jesus Christ. And then we saw last week, even the shepherds responding on that hillside to the news of Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem and the wise men coming across from the east to worship that newborn king. But now we're at a point in our story where finally the birth of the savior has come. No longer is it a moment where Jesus has been foretold. No longer are we at a place where the birth of Jesus is just something that's out there, an announcement that's been made but hasn't occurred yet. We're at a place in the story of Jesus where he's here, he has come. The one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, has come. And now it's time for a new question, not how will the world respond to the announcement of his birth. Now it's all about how will the world respond now that Jesus has come. In this series, we have talked about a lot of different aspects of worship. We've talked about the heart of worship. We talked about how important it is that our worship doesn't just come from our lips, but it comes from within us and our hearts are involved in that process. We talked about the attitude of worship, how important it is that we come with joy and thanksgiving when we come and worship the king. Last week, we talked about the call of worship. Remember the throne Pastor Chris had out here? We talked about how important it is in worship that we get off the throne and we worship the only one who should be on that throne. Well, today we're gonna to talk about another aspect of worship. We're gonna talk about the response of worship. How will the world respond now that Jesus is here? And maybe more importantly, how should we respond to Jesus Christ, God with us coming? Now, we're gonna answer that question by traveling to a few places this morning. First of all, we're gonna to go to the king's palace. We spent a little bit of time there that, uh, last week. We're gonna to go to King Herod's palace and now not see how Herod reacted to the announcement of Jesus' birth. Now we're gonna look and see how Herod reacted now that Jesus was here. And then we're gonna to travel to a, a second place that is the city of Jerusalem to the temple of God. We're gonna meet a man named Simeon and see how he responded to the news of Jesus Christ being born. And then finally, we'll go to a place that's familiar to us at this point. How are we going to respond in our hearts? Would you pray with me as we jump into our text this morning? Father God, we ask you uh, to come and meet us in these moments as we open up your holy word and look to you. God, I thank you for your grace to each one that's in this room. You have given out so much. Father, we ask you that you, through your holy word, would change us as only you can. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we were introduced to the story of the wise men. Remember that? And we saw these wise men who had really traveled across the desert on their way to go and follow this star that they had seen in the sky. And we saw that the wise men eventually made their way to Jerusalem and they found an audience with King Herod and they asked him a really crucial question as they sat with him in his palace. They asked him, where this child was going to be born, where this newborn king would be born. And as they sat there with Herod, they described to him what they had seen, and Herod began to be troubled, if you remember, and all of Jerusalem with him. And then Herod ultimately called in his own wise men and found out where would this child be born. He found out it was Beth Bethlehem, and he sent ahead these wise men who had traveled to the city of Bethlehem and said, you go ahead and worship the king. You tell me when you find him because I want to worship him too, which was obviously a lie. But we got to see them bringing their gold and frankincense and myrrh to Jesus Christ as gifts to him. And so we saw last week a little bit of Herod's reaction, but we pick up this morning with the next part of Herod's reaction. Matthew chapter two, verse 13 is where we're gonna start today. How will Herod respond to Jesus now that he's here? So Matthew writes this in chapter two. When they had departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 16 says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed 
all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is the kind of text you can't help but read and just think, what did I just read? The angel of the Lord who appears to to Joseph, he says to Joseph, Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. So Herod here has become so threatened by the potential of this newborn king coming and usurping the authority of his kingship. He's so concerned about this newborn king coming and taking what he believes belongs to him that he is willing to use any means necessary to thoroughly eliminate the threat that Jesus posed to him. And he has all the baby boys in that entire region, two years old or younger, he has them killed. One commentator talking about this particular passage says, if you think about this passage too much, it will ruin the Christmas story for you. There's some truth to that. It's hard to imagine Herod sending these Roman soldiers, hard to imagine the brutality of them ripping through Bethlehem and killing all these babies. But imagine what this must have been like for Mary and Joseph who get this vision again from an angel. The first time they heard from an angel, it was to announce that the Messiah was going to be born. And now they get a vision from this angel telling them the same child who was born has a death warrant out for him. And not just by anybody, by the king who, if anybody could see this actually accomplished, it would be him. Then Matthew gives us a little bit of silver lining around the story that the angel does indeed make it to Joseph in time and they get the child to Egypt, which actually was a fulfillment of prophecy. But there is no silver lining for many of the families involved in this story. It's a brutal scene. You know, we saw a lot of humanitarian crises the, this last year around our world. Some of us remember seeing pictures of babies like being thrown over fences and walls this summer. This is the kind of emotion, maybe even far worse than anything we've ever seen that comes out of this text. It's really a heartbreaking piece of history, but it is a little bit of a clue. It's a first clue maybe in the story of Jesus in Matthew's gospel of just how much, how much disruption this child is gonna bring to the status quo. And all because Herod became furious. Now, how do we understand the reaction that Herod has here to the birth of Jesus Christ? How do we make sense of it? I guess at one level, you're not ever gonna be able to make sense of behavior like this, right? This is like true psychopathic behavior. You're not gonna be able to get yourself into a mental place where this seems like a good idea. And in fact, if you ever watch like movies about the nativity story that cover this part of you know, the, the story, I think usually these movies do a good job of presenting Herod as like a very unstable figure, and I'm sure he was. But I think there's also something deeper going on in this text. Something else at play here. Do you hear what I hear in this text? And I think a lot of people would read this story and sure, they'd see the action of an unstable, maybe a, an out of control, a despotic king. But Herod's response is actually just another example of a phenomenon we'll see throughout Jesus' life. Jesus demands a response. He demands a response. What kind of child could cause a king to react this way to their birth? No ordinary child would do that. But we'll see something that we see throughout all of Jesus' life, actually, he will be, throughout his days, drawing out extreme reactions from everybody that he meets. This is one of the characteristics of Jesus. Jesus demands a response. We see this throughout Jesus' life from his disciples who are willing to abandon businesses and follow him at all costs. And also people who are hell-bent on seeing him dead. 
Jesus throughout his life demanded a response. Herod gives us one example of that. He wants to destroy and see this child killed. But thankfully, on the day after Christmas, Herod is not our only example of how people responded to Jesus after his birth. In fact, Luke, in the text we've been studying, Luke chapters one and two, gives us another example of how Jesus was responded to after he was born. And so in Luke chapters one and two, we see the reaction of Simeon. Now, Luke chapter one and two, and especially chapter two, these are, it's a familiar passage rather to like probably almost everybody in the room. Well, we've talked about that a little bit throughout this series. Um, Did anybody else in the room grow up with a mom or dad who would read the, uh, the chapter, Luke chapter two on Christmas morning before you could open your presents. Anybody else have that specific torture applied to them as a child? Um, uh, that's what we did in my house growing up. Um, and I'm a pastor now, of course, so I'm all for people reading the Bible before they get their presents. I get that. Uh, but as a kid, there weren't any longer verses in the Bible, right, than Luke chapter two. And uh, I grew up with my grandmother next door too. Uh, So my routine as a kid uh, would be to go up to the window of our house and we'd have to wait for my grandmother to come from next door. She'd walk across the sidewalk and up into our house. We'd have to wait for her there. And then when she came in, then we could read Luke chapter two and then we could open our presents. So I have in my head from my childhood, Luke chapter two just burned into my brain as I waited with my eyes just laser focused on the presents, right? But not all of Luke chapter two. Uh, Because for many of us, our understanding of Luke chapter two and what it tells us about Jesus, it basically wraps up in about verse 14 when the angels appear to the shepherds and announce Jesus' birth. Or maybe we get to verse 20 uh, where the, the shepherds actually visit the birthplace of Jesus Christ. But do you know what happens next in the story of Luke chapter two? Because Luke is not done teaching us about the birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, not only do we learn a little bit about Jesus's first days on the earth, we also meet somebody who gives us the first pronouncement about Jesus that we get after his birth. And so our second stop this morning begins in Luke chapter two, verse 21, where we read this. At the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, We have here Mary and Joseph following the Abrahamic covenant, following the Mosaic law. They have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, which is also when they would name the child. Now they didn't get the joy of picking out a name for their child. They were told this child will be called God saves Jesus. And then next Luke brings us into a city that will become a city that's very important in the life of Jesus. The city all of you will know, the city of Jerusalem. And In particular, Luke takes us to a place within the city of Jerusalem. He takes us to God's temple. And God here has ordained a meeting to happen that gives us really our second response this morning to the birth of Christ. Verse 22, Luke says this, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice. According to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we get here a couple ceremonies that Jesus is going to go through that Mary and Joseph are participating in. And what we can ascertain here from the details Luke gives us is Jesus is about 40 days old at this point. And what he tells us here are really details from three different ceremonies that are wrapped into one here. We have Mary's purification that would be done around this time. And then we have the dedication and presentation of the firstborn that would require a sacrifice to be given, which is why they're coming to the temple. Now, typically your average household uh, would be sacrificing a lamb to commemorate this. This is one of the texts we can actually draw out that Jesus came from a poorer family because they're able to just sacrifice two birds here. According to Leviticus 12, that was an option for poorer folks. And here they come up to the temple. And at this point is when we meet the next character that Luke's gonna introduce us to in verses 25 to 35, we get to meet Simeon. Now listen to what Luke says about this guy. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So we have a very mysterious figure here, somebody that we actually don't know all that much about, but Luke does give us some information about this guy. And the first thing he tells us is that he is righteous and devout. Luke wants us to know about Simeon. This is a pious man. Not only that, Luke tells us that he has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's like a period way of saying this guy's hope was bound up in waiting for the Messiah to be born. And on top of that, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, don't miss that detail. We can read right over that. It's very important. Luke's telling us this man is going to be speaking for the Holy Spirit. He's going to be speaking the words of God. Simeon functions in this chapter almost as a prophet for us. And then one other specific point our text makes is that the Holy Spirit had actually communicated to this man that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. And so we have here on this particular day, Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus coming up to the temple. And we also have this man, this probably older man who's been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah also coming up to the temple. And then Luke tells us how they meet in verse 27. He came in the spirit, Simeon, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So we have quite a scene that develops here in Luke chapter two, and there's a lot of moving parts. So for one, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the temple of God in Jerusalem. Maybe nothing comes to your mind, that's fine. Um, But this you should have in your mind as a a really massive and very crowded area. So the temple in Jesus' day was actually renovated just a few decades before Jesus was born by King Herod, none other. And King Herod had expanded the temple of Jerusalem to be about 36 acres in size. That's about 25 football fields worth of square footage. So it's a big area. And also a very busy area, bustling area, lots of activity always happening at the temple. So picture in your mind, almost like an airport or um, professional sports stadium complex, lots of people around all the time. Now I know some of you guys hate crowds, so the temple may have been a challenge for you, but that's what it was. And then not only do we learn that this temple is, they're at this temple that's, you know, massive in size and, and busy. We also are told by Luke, of course, these are new parents, right? Who are traveling with an infant. (laughs) Another layer of complexity in this text. Now I've only been a parent for about six or seven years. And uh, so I still remember what it's like very well to travel with that very small baby. It's a big production, isn't it? To travel with an infant. A lot of work goes into that. In fact, um, I was telling first service, like my group therapy here for a second with you guys here. Um, I think to this day, probably the most stressful part of my life is traveling with little children. Can I get an amen from a parent out there? Um, It's a lot of work to get kids anywhere. And this is what these young parents are facing as they travel with baby Jesus. And we know they're here, not just for a visit, they're actually coming for basically a medical procedure here with Jesus. So there's a lot for these young parents to be stressed out about. And then not only are they in this massive area filled with people and traveling with a newborn baby, now they have this older man who they've never met before coming up to them and saying, I want to hold your child, right? And so Mary does something that probably all you younger moms with enough sense would not do. She evidently hands this child over to Simeon. And look at how Luke tells us he reacts. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God. He worships. I don't think it's insignificant 
that the first two times people encounter Jesus Christ after he was born, their reaction is to worship. We see that with the shepherds. And now we see that with Simeon here. And what we're going to find as we read the rest of this story is that God had actually ordained this meeting to happen just as he had made certain announcements about Jesus before Jesus was born through angels. Now he's going to use Simeon to make some announcements about Jesus now that Jesus is here. And Simeon really gives us three announcements here. The first one we already read in verse 30, he said, my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, salvation is here. The first pronouncement Simeon makes. I don't know if you've ever waited for something for a long time. I probably have some high school seniors in the room now. That is a long year of high school, isn't it? You remember that? Waiting and waiting and waiting for that year to be over. Or maybe a, a student in another phase, maybe you're a college student or a different grade level, and you are just waiting for this year to be over so you can move into the next phase of your life. Maybe you're a, a kid in here and you're waiting to have enough money for something. You're saving up for something and you almost have enough. Maybe a teen saving for a car. Maybe it's a couple saving for a house or something even bigger like that. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting on a person. Maybe there's a guy or a girl that you uh, have been noticing and you're waiting for them, young people, maybe to get the courage to ask you on a date. Maybe you're a couple in here and you've been praying, asking God for a child and you find yourself waiting for that. There's a heavy emotion associated with waiting. Waiting is hard. And here we have a man who has been waiting his entire life for this moment right here. Now, what he says, salvation is here, might seem pretty obvious to us today. I mean, we are living in the church age. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We all know salvation came in Jesus. But this was a momentous moment in history when Jesus, the one who had been foretold, was finally here. It must have been an amazing moment, moment uh, for Simeon. Now, of course, salvation wasn't completed yet. Jesus still had to live his life, still had to overcome temptation, still had to teach and heal and baptize. He had to die, be resurrected, go up to heaven. But when Jesus came, it changed everything. And what Simeon alerts us to, what Simeon proclaims, what Simeon tells us is salvation came in Jesus the other announcement he made already was in verses 31 and 32. He told us salvation is for all peoples. Salvation's for all peoples. Salvation in Jesus Christ isn't wrapped up in one ethnicity. It's not for one people group. Salvation in Jesus Christ was meant for all humanity. Now I know we're in a culture where it's, you know, in vogue to be inclusive, Salvation in Jesus Christ was inclusive before it was cool to be inclusive. Here we have a, a Jewish man who's talking to Jewish parents about a Jewish baby, but this man knows enough about the Old Testament promises and everything God had promised to humanity through the Abrahamic covenant, as well as other places to know that when this child came, the Messiah, who he had been waiting for, it was about so much more than just one people group. This was for all peoples. Now, I grew up in a, in a multi-ethnic church in Toronto. And uh, when I left in like 2008, I think there were about 30 different nationalities represented in a church of about 200. So we had a real melting pot there. And, uh, and I remember growing up, you know, you had maybe 200 people on a Sunday and, uh, you know, honestly, sometimes very little in common with each other when it comes to cultural background and cultural norms and things like that. But we did have one thing in common. And that was our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it was an amazing life lesson for me to learn as a kid to see every Sunday people from Trinidad or Spain or Italy or people from Bolivia, people from China, even people from the USA uh, up there with us together, all 
coming together from around the world to worship the name of Jesus Christ. And I love the note that Luke makes in verse 33. He tells us, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Yeah, I guess they marveled at that. Here we have two parents who had both seen visions of angels telling them something about this child. They had immaculately conceived this child. They had shepherds who told them, yeah, we saw angel too. And actually a whole sky full of them. And we're here to worship this baby too. You would think nothing would uh, surprise Mary and Joseph anymore. And yet they hear this about their child and they marvel at what Simeon says. So often we can hear some of these things over and over again. We can get tired of them. We gotta be a people that, that marvels at this truth that has been told to us. Now, Simeon has given us two announcements about Jesus. Salvation is here, it's for all peoples, but he's not done yet because Simeon, in verses 34 and 35, he gives us what I think is actually probably the most significant, definitely the most sobering announcement of Jesus. And he takes us out of the present and actually prophesies about the future, talking about Jesus. Listen to what he says, Simeon blessed them, verse 34, and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here, Simeon's entire tone changes. If this was a, a movie, this is where the music would start to change, the clouds would come in, the sky would get dark. Simeon gives us what is his third announcement about Jesus' birth. He tells us, Jesus will divide. So here in this moment, Jesus is holding up this, Jesus, Simeon is holding up this little baby and he says to Mary and Joseph, in that moment, this child will be for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. This little baby will divide humanity between judgment and salvation. Now put yourself, if you're a parent, put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes as you listen to that. This little tiny baby you just gave birth to, you nurse, you put to bed, you snuggle with and hold, this little baby is going to be the one that divides humanity according to judgment and salvation. These are heavy words from Simeon. And then he even takes a very ominous tone with Mary herself. He says, a sword will pass through your own soul also. In other words, the rejection that Jesus is going to face as people turn away from him, you're going to feel that as well. So the privilege of caring and giving birth to the Messiah is not going to come without pain, even for Mary. Hmm. Do you see what I see in this text? Simeon takes this joyous and happy occasion. I don't know if you've ever been to a baby dedication. They're usually a pretty good time. Simeon takes that moment and turns very serious. But he gives us a sobering but essential part of the Christmas story. Jesus will be a divisive figure. Now, before you might think Simeon is sort of going out on his own, maybe getting carried away, maybe he's kind of misrepresenting even what Jesus would become, listen to what Jesus himself says just 10 chapters later in Luke. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus says in this text, I will divide families, I will divide friends. Now, don't get this wrong. It's not that Jesus had an agenda to divide or he just loved being an antagonist and splitting people up. But Jesus recognized when I come onto the scene, 
not everybody is gonna respond to me the same way. I will divide. Salvation in Jesus divides not along ethnic lines, not along racial lines, not along political lines or social lines or economic lines. Salvation in Jesus divides based on one standard. How do you respond to Jesus? And really the point that Simeon makes is the same point that we learned from Herod's response. In simple terms, Jesus demands a response. I've made a, a few trips out west in, in my day. And um, one of the places that I've been a couple times, I've talked about going out west a few times, but one of the places I've been to multiple times is a place called Pikes Peak. Anybody ever been to that area before, Colorado? Um, beautiful area. And, uh, and you can actually go to the top of Pikes Peak, and there are two ways to get up there, okay? There's the uh, Cog Railway, that's the easy way. Um, and then there's the option for crazy people, you can drive up the mountain, okay? And, uh, and that road, that's the actual picture of it. It doesn't really do the danger of the road justice. There are times where this road twists and turns on really sheer cliffs, sometimes very narrow shoulders. My dad was the one that drove it when we were a family out there, and he still talks about the white knuckle experience of driving up Pikes Peak and how terrified he was. But there are large sections of that with just complete drop-offs and no guardrails whatsoever. It makes it a very dangerous drive. People die on this road every year. In fact, at the top of the mountain, they have a gift shop and they sell like shirts and um, mugs and stuff like that that say, real men don't need guardrails, all right? <laughs> Which is when I realized I'm not a real man uh, <laughs> because I like my guardrails. <laughs> but at the top of the mountain, um, once you get up there, there are amazing views, of course, of the surrounding area. In fact, you can see out like 100 miles from the top. And one of the things that you'll see up there is how the water flows down from the mountain through the rivers and the lakes and the tributaries and disperses out into the flatland. It's something that you see firsthand from that summit that geologists refer to as a watershed. Now, a watershed is simply the ridge of a mountain that separates waters that travel away from each other to distant places. And in the Rocky Mountains, that's really significant because what you have in the Rocky Mountains is, is like water that falls on one side of the mountain will travel down through lakes and rivers and tributaries and go all the way over to the Pacific Ocean. And water that falls on the other side of the mountain, rain that comes down there, will travel down the mountain through rivers and tributaries and lake systems all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. So think about that you have water that ends up maybe thousands of miles away from each itself that just started by falling maybe a couple inches apart. And that's an image that I love to use when I'm talking about Jesus. See, you might look at Jesus as just one point in history. Just one man, just one figure from the past. You might be asking, what's the big deal whether I believe or don't believe just that one person? What's the difference whether I trust or don't trust just one man? But Jesus is a watershed figure. And what you do with that one man, what you do with the one person of Jesus Christ has tremendous implications that really ring out for eternity. Eternal life with God on one hand and eternal separation from God on the other. Jesus is a watershed figure. He demands a response. And really, the examples we looked at today in our scripture give us the two extremes in those reactions to Jesus, right? We had Herod, who comes down one side of Jesus, wants to see Jesus destroyed, is determined to see Jesus killed, opposed to Jesus. And then we have, on the other, other hand, the reaction that Simeon gives us, 
someone who worships Jesus, somebody who proclaims truth about Jesus. But as you go throughout Jesus's life and you read the rest of the stories in the gospels, what you'll find is that everybody Jesus encounters ends up in one of those two responses. Throughout the rest of Jesus's life, he draws out those same two responses. So we have John the Baptist. Then we also have Judas the betrayer. We have the tax collectors and the sinners who find grace in Jesus. But we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who oppose him. We have the woman at the well, the man born blind, Joseph of Arimathea, all of which who follow Jesus and their lives are transformed. But then we have the scribes and the priests who oppose Jesus their entire life. And then even after Jesus is born or uh, risen rather and, and gone back to heaven, we see the same two responses carrying on in his legacy. We have Paul and Epaphroditus and Silas and Timothy. They're willing to go across the whole world proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. But we also have the Judaizers and the persecutors who are willing to follow those guys around the world trying to stamp out the message that they're proclaiming. Jesus is a watershed figure. He demands a response. And that leads us to the last place we're going to travel this morning. This is a place that's a lot more personal than Herod's palace or even the temple of God in Jerusalem. Very briefly, what is our response to Jesus being here? Now, the first application, maybe the the obvious application from this text would be for people who don't have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe as you, you think about that watershed moment, the difference between belief and unbelief, the difference between trust and not trusting. Maybe you're not sure how you should respond to Jesus. Let me be one of the people that pleads with you. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We have been spending the entire month of December talking about worship. What if your first act of worship were to respond in faith to Jesus Christ? What if your first act of worship coming to God or to be to say to God, I want to respond to you in faith. And you recognize Jesus is a watershed figure who demands a response. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts, God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Maybe you spent Christmas this year unsure of where you stand with Jesus. You don't have to go into 2022 unsure. Maybe you have been watching Jesus at a distance. Maybe you've been keeping Jesus at a distance. Maybe you're here today because you had to be. Maybe you got driven here. Maybe you got picked up and brought here. Maybe you stumbled across us online. I don't know why you're in the room this morning. But I do know if you're at that watershed moment, the difference between unbelief and belief, friend, I want to be one of the people that pleads with you. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What you do with that one name, it is not insignificant. That moment will ring out for eternity, whether reward or consequence. Friend, make your first act of worship to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. What about those of us who already have responded in faith to Jesus Christ? Maybe you find yourself this morning as you think about Herod's response or Simeon's response, you say, yeah, I'm definitely on the side with Simeon. I know where I stand when it comes to Jesus. Does Simeon's story teach us anything about how we can respond in worship. I believe it does. In Luke's story, 
Luke gives us this beautiful picture of Simeon holding the baby Jesus, blessing God, so worshiping God, and proclaiming truth about Jesus. Salvation is here, it's for all peoples, and Jesus is the one whose salvation or judgment will come through. Simeon proclaims truth about Jesus. And in that way, Simeon sets a path for all believers to follow because worship resounds when we proclaim truth about Jesus. Worship resounds when we, like Simeon or John the Baptist or the apostles or thousands throughout the church age, when we proclaim truth about Jesus, we are worshiping him. I think that's why one of the reasons why we have in the New Testament so many authors that go off worshiping and giving truth about Jesus. They are teaching us what it looks like to worship him. Church, what we say about Jesus in our worship, it matters a lot to him. There's this great little story in the gospels where um, Jesus, he's in an area that's um, outside of areas he usually operates, a little offbeaten place, Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is gathered there with some of his closest followers and he asks them a question. He says, who do other people say I am? Remember the story? Well, the disciples, they um, think about that one a little bit. And uh, they say, you know, some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah or Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks another question. Who do you say I am? Now I've thought about that question Jesus asked. Why does he ask some of his closest followers? These are, are guys who clearly had professed faith in him, had in many cases reoriented their entire lives around him. These guys know who Jesus is. Why does he ask them, who do you say I am? I think Jesus was doing what he always did. He's pressing into his followers, even people who claim to follow him and testing their hearts. Who do you say I am? I know what other people say about me. Who do you say I am? And then, of course, it's Peter who replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he proclaims truth about Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says in response to that? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now I have this picture in my head. When we as a church gather for corporate worship and Pastor Gabe or Josh come out to lead us in worship and they say at the beginning of the service, stand with us, church, as we sing out to God. I have this picture in my mind of in that very moment, Jesus leaning into our church and asking us a question. Who do you say I am? And then listening for our response as we worship him. You see, when we gather as a church to corporately worship Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to proclaim truth about who Jesus is and answer that question, who do you say I am? Throughout this series, we have been ending up here with a worship song after each sermon. And for a while, I'm, oftentimes the guy will come out here and close the service for our in-person services. And I always come out from the back curtain um, after Chris prays and, you know, give a couple announcements. You know what I'm talking about. And um, during this worship series, when the band has been up here, I did that the first week. I came out, but that first week I walked into an environment that was, it just blew me away the way the church was singing. I felt like I was walking into a totally different place. And so the rest of the series, I've kind of snuck up here beside the drum cage and I get out onto the stage a little bit so I can feel the moment a little bit more and then come out and close us in prayer. But from that perspective, I've had a chance to watch this church worship over the last couple of weeks, not in a creepy way, okay? Um, watching you guys worship. And I picture in my mind, you answering the question Jesus asked, who do you say I am? 
And I picture Jesus as he listens to his church singing, holy, 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 or king of kings. I picture Jesus having the same response he did to Peter. Blessed are you, church. So in these moments, we're going to get a chance to sing one more time. We have an opportunity now to worship, to proclaim truth about Jesus. We're going to sing a song that has been the walk-up for this sermon series. If you were at Christmas Eve services, we sang it there too. A song you already know the tune to, Echo Holy, that talks about ascribing all of these truths to Jesus Christ. But church, I want you to do this as you sing this song. As the worship leader comes out, invites you to stand or sit and sing and listen to the words of this song and participate yourself, I want you to imagine, if you're watching at home online, I want you to imagine Jesus asks you, who do you say I am? And this is our response in worship. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. We have had a chance to put that at the forefront of our mind this month as we worship and thank you for the difference and the salvation and the change that has come into our lives because of your sacrifice and your love for us. God, if, as, we, as we walk away out of this Christmas season, Lord, we have in our hearts ringing this desire to worship you one more time. Lord, may it be a part of our life, not just something that we pick up and, 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 and work on at Christmas time. May, may this inform the way we carry ourselves into 2022, that we carry into 2022 worshiping you with a heart of worship, with an attitude of worship, obeying the call of worship to get ourselves off the throne and to respond in worship with our answer to the question, who do you say I am? Lord, we offer up this worship to you, our great King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.